Revelation. I expect this is going to spill over into the winter somewhat. It's a big book, 22 chapters. And uh, this morning, we're mostly in Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. We're going to look back at a, a few verses from Revelation 5 that we've already read, but we're going to mostly park in chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. If you don't have a Bible, you can just follow in the order of worship. It's all, it's all there. Downtown Presbyterian is a local church. It's this huge insight that I bring to you this morning that we are a local church. And I know you're excited to learn that. And, um, you know, I was thinking as I studied this this week, there's, there's kind of two extremes that a local church can fall into in, in thinking about itself. And, and we, we, we want to avoid both of these extremes. One extreme would be <clears throat> that you never really own uh, your problems as a local church. You know, I mean, the fact that a church is a gathering of people who are, are faulty, who are sinners, you know, who, who make mistakes, that means we're going to have problems. All churches are going to have problems. And it's an extreme to just be unwilling to look at that and own it. All right, now that's, that's one. But the other extreme would be to, to never as a church really own what Scripture says we are as part of the church. And when I say the church, I don't mean our local church. I don't mean our denomination. I mean what the Apostles' Creed calls the holy Catholic church, the bride of Christ throughout all the ages. And, and that's really important to think about going into this passage because early in the book of Revelation... Almost at the beginning, chapters 2 and 3 are Jesus speaking very pointedly to local churches. And he names names. And he calls a spade a spade. And he talks about their, their problems, their, their sins. So there's that. So he's avoiding, we're avoiding that extreme. But in this text this morning, it helps us avoid the other one. And it's a vision of the church as she is. And as she will be seen throughout eternity. Because if all we do are look at our problems, and again, you know, as a local church, we've got them. We all bring our, our own problems to the table and then we make some new ones. But if all we do is look at those to avoid one extreme and don't think about what we are and what our future is, that's not healthy. And in Revelation, Jesus Christ is letting His people see both realities. Let me say this. this. These visions are given to people in the first century, <clears throat> some who've experienced hardship, some who are facing a lot of suffering, maybe martyrdom. This is to encourage them and keep them, go keep them going. You know, not, not just so they survive, but so they flourish and conquer. And it's for, it's for 21st century Christians too. You know, I don't know everyone I'm looking at, but I know some of you enough to know that uh, you go through suffering because it's a fallen world, and that means we lose jobs, and we need money, and a child is acting out, and maybe a parent is dying, and we go through loss, and there are all those realities, and we go through that. But there's even the reality that some of you suffer because you love Jesus. And that thing that Jake just said about, well, he's quoting Jesus. Don't think I came to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. You feel that in your family or your workplace or among some friends that used to be closer and now maybe they're pulling back from you. This is to help you. Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. 
And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know how many of you have uh, been to the Upcountry History Museum. It's not far from here, that way. And uh, you may have been several times, or you may have been with a child on a field trip, or who knows. But... uh, the first time I went, I saw a photograph. It was um, upstairs, and I don't know if the photograph is still there because I know that museums, you know, move different pieces in and out of exhibits. But it was a photograph taken during the '60s, about two blocks from where we're sitting. And the photograph was of it was from a Sunday morning, and it was on the steps of a local church, and it was a group of white worshippers stopping a group of African-Americans from entering for worship. And it's one of those photographs that sort of punches you in the gut. Now, lest anybody misunderstand, there is a book by uh, a professor at the University of Virginia named Charles Marsh called God's Long Summer. And it's a whole book about these kinds of moments. And a great deal of that book takes place in Jackson, Mississippi, which is my hometown. Lest anyone think I'm throwing 
throwing rocks. But lots of cities could tell these stories. Now, here's, here's the question. When you look at a photograph like that, or, or you hear those stories, or maybe you meet someone who went through these things, and you're struck by, man, that is wrong. That's wrong. Why is it wrong? Now, you know, the obvious answer is, well, that, that's a violation of civil rights. That's why, that's why that photograph in that museum is in the civil rights section. And that's true. That, that's, that's an accurate answer. But I would say the real punch in the gut is underneath that. And it's the fact that when you hear about those kind of episodes, which still go on, and they're not just unique to the South, and they're not just unique to the United States. Those things always have gone on all over the world. The reason it's supposed to be a punch in the gut is because that cuts against the grain of what the church is. Before we get into a discussion of what the church does, that cuts against what the church is. This vision partly in chapter 5 and mostly this morning looking at chapter 7, is a vision that's given to John and through John given to us of what the church is. And we need to hear this because, you know, the problems we bump into all the time, but this is how Christ sees the church right now and what one day she'll look like. I want to look at three things about what the church is. The first off, and the first two sound like contradictions, The first point is the church is global. The second is that the church is Israelite. The church is global, the church is Israelite, and the church is healed. Okay? Global, it's Israelite, and it's healed. Now, first off, talking about that the church is global. There's kind of two senses to that. One is that it's global in the sense of being massive. I mean, we use that adjective when something's gigantic, taken off, gone viral, gone around the world. It's that. It's also global in its representation. First off, it's just, it's global in its size. The church is massive. Look in, look in chapter 7, verse 9. What does it say? After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. Now in the book of Revelation, that's saying something. Because in Revelation, you get, ter- like, you know, 144,000 and myriads of myriads. I mean, John's not afraid to name some big numbers. But he said, I saw a crowd of people that no one could possibly number. Now, what is the takeaway of that? And this is an extremely complicated technical point, so I want you to listen closely, okay? The takeaway from that is that lots and lots of people are going to become Christians, that's the technical point. Okay, tough crowd. I was just kind of being lighthearted just then. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Wow. It's a vision that tons of people are going to become Christians. And you think about what that would mean if you're getting this, this revelation. You're one of these seven churches. You're, you're a first, maybe second generation Christian. And you've got friends that are Christians, but you're totally the minority in your town or your city. And you know without being a world traveler, you know enough about the world that you're incredibly in the minority and it's a vision that, wait a second, you mean that one day the church isn't just like 500 people? Or 3,000 people? You mean to say that one day the followers of Christ will be a, a group of people that is so large that no one can number it? And the Scriptures are saying, absolutely. 
It's meant to encourage us. Okay, it's global in just the size. It's massive, but it's global in its representation. And this is a theme in Revelation. All right, look back at, at uh, the first text, chapter 5. These are, these are these mysterious figures from uh, a few sermons ago. The, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, they're singing. Look at what they're singing. This is in uh, verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll. Speaking, they're singing to Jesus. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Now then look right under that, chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out, Salvation belongs to our God. Now, what is God letting them see and what is God letting us see there? Think about this. If if you want to see what... Well, I'm not an expert. I've lived here seven years. But if if I were asked, what is the most diverse, multi-ethnic spot in Greenville, South Carolina? My vote would be, it is, if it's a beautiful day, it's Falls Park. It's Liberty Bridge. I mean, if you go on a beautiful day, you look around, there are the old and the middle-aged and the young and males and females and singles, married, the divorced. There's every race that's represented, I'd say in the area, not just the city limits. And it's just a beehive of kind of everybody that makes up Greenville. And why is that? Because that's how life is. Everybody is drawn to truth and beauty and goodness. And where you find kind of these vortexes of a lot of beauty and a lot of goodness, you find everybody. I mean, it's even that way with food. I I saw kind of a little historical piece about the history of Kansas City. You know, Kansas City is sort of linked to, to barbecue. And this history said that the first business that was integrated... The first integrated business in Kansas City was a barbecue restaurant. Because it was like people of all different kinds could say, hey, you know, I may, I may not want my kids playing with you, but this barbecue is awesome. You know, and they gathered around that and had to go, I know, it's just like we've got to share this because it's, it's too good not to share. And the refrain of the New Testament is that the gospel is the example par excellence of the thing that is so true and so good and so beautiful that all the different kinds of people, all the people groups, all the cultural groups across geographic lines, across uh, lines of time and chronology are drawn to it because it fits. And that, that's a beautiful thing to see because one of the, one of the claims that sometimes is, is leveled against Christianity or, or is kind of a, you know, kind of a gauntlet thrown down is to say, yeah, yeah, okay, like you. you. You were born in the United States. And maybe you were born in the Bible Belt in the United States. So yeah, you're a Christian. But yeah, I mean, like this guy over here, he wasn't born in the United States. So no. I mean, like Christianity feels true and definitive for you, but it doesn't feel that way to people in different parts of the world. And what are we seeing is that the gospel fits every person. It fits every culture. Did you notice the quote on the front of the bulletin? It's by an African scholar. He's a professor 
at Yale Divinity School. He, he, not just African-American, he is from Africa. And he, he says this very starkly. He says that, look, the thing that happened when the gospel really began to penetrate into the African continent is not that, you know what? It made everybody calm down and be less African and act more like Europeans. He said, no, it did not do that. It made renewed Africans who finally, you know, in his language, they beat their drums and they sang their songs and the stars celebrated that they had found what they always wanted. Every people group that believes the gospel experiences that. And, okay, and if the, if the gospel is that beautiful, if it's that global, if there's that much participation around the world, what does that practically mean for us? One pr- very practical application of that is this. When you're sitting in your office and you're looking at the person next cubicle over and you're thinking, they're just not going to want Jesus. Understand how judgmental we're being. Because the, the little sneaky thing that's latent in that thought is that I showed up wanting him. Scripture says, no, we did not. If we reached for Jesus, it's because God changed our heart to reach for Jesus. But here's, here's the thing. When we found him, it, it, he was the desire of our hearts. And you know what? If God can be merciful to us that way, God can be merciful to her that way or to the guy that lives diagonally across the street from me that I cannot figure out. He probably feels the same way about us. God can work in... The gospel fits him. The gospel fits her. The gospel fits all the nations around the world. All right? It's, it's, it's global. The church is global because the gospel is global. The church is Israel... Or the church is Israelite. Now, where am I getting that? Because that, the word Israel is not in the text. Where do you say that? Think about this. In the Old Testament, the people of God is the nation of God. Singular. The people, singular, of God is the nation of Israel. But you get to the New Testament, and it says there's this mystery that God had all along, and that mystery you know, in the lives of the apostles is really being unveiled and made known to the world. What's the mystery? The mystery is that God's plan has always been that the people of God would ultimately include not just the nation of Israel, but all the nations. All the nations. That that the peoples could become the people of the earth, of of the people of God. That is exactly what you hear in this text, that all these different tongues and tribes, all these people who did not grow up with this history of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they have become Israel. How do you see that? Look in chapter uh, 5 up at the top. When they sing this new song about Christ, what do they say? Look in verse 10. You've made... Well, excuse me. Look in verse 9. You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people. You ransomed. And the word ransom there is just an English translation of the Greek verb you bought, you purchased. That verb is used throughout the Old Testament of no other nation but whom? Israel. Israel are the people that God bought. 
And it says it in the Psalms, and it says it in the law, it says it in the prophets. He bought them. And these creatures are looking at this multi-ethnic, gigantic group saying, you are worthy because you bought them. That is the language of Israel. And then what's the next thing they they say? You've made them a kingdom and priest to our God. That's a loaded phrase. That is the phrase that God used on Mount Sinai when He brought the people out of slavery in Egypt and they're assembled at the foot of the mountain and God says, they are my treasured possession. Think about that. These people who are going to act like knuckleheads in the wilderness, these are my treasured possession and I'm going to make them a kingdom and priests Amazing. You're going to have a clergy, you're going to have a priesthood, but all of you at some level will be priests. And these creatures are saying, all those people, all those men and women, from all those cultures, they're a kingdom and they're priests. And what does he say in chapter 7? Look in verse, uh, look in verse 15. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. In the Old Testament, God speaks of doing those things, of sheltering, of protecting from the blazing sun, of shepherding of Israel. It's a picture of a group of people who are the new Israel. What does that mean for us? This is amazing, guys, because the promise to Abraham was that through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And it comes to fullness in the last... Uh, it, comes to, it comes to pass in the last book of the Bible. I was talking with somebody just uh, about three days ago. I was having lunch with a friend. And uh, it's someone who grew up here. He doesn't live here anymore. But uh, he was saying that his mom is a direct descendant of Elias Earl. And if you know anything about the history of Greenville, the two men whose names you hear in the history of Greenville are Vardry Macby and Elias Earl. And um, in fact, he was talking about the land that his ancestors used to have, and I realized that I think my house sits on it. I thought, man, I mean, this is getting, this is getting kind of personal. And uh, in fact, just this morning, I was talking to some folks visiting this morning who, ha- who had that same ancestry. Now, here's why I bring that up. Um, you know, it's really cool and I think extremely interesting to know your history and to have that sense of, of place and identity. But you know, there, there are quite a few people in this room who might be sitting here thinking, well, you know what? When I was growing up, we moved like five times. And I really don't know my family history. Or it might be, you know what? I was adopted. I had wonderful uh, adoptive parents, but uh, I don't really know, at least physically, like where I come from and, and what that means. It may sense, that, that, that might actually affect how you think about you. And think about this. If you're a believer in Christ and you're a member of the church, that means that be you Jew or be you Gentile, I mean Jewish, ethnically Jewish or ethnically Gentile, when you follow Christ, you are truly in the new Israel. You are Israel. And here's what that means. Here's how old your ancestry is. It's the genealogies in the Bible. Here's how old your story is. Genesis. Here's how old your people are. 
Abraham. And, you know, if you are the person who had kind of a chaotic, crazy <clears throat> family background or personal background, you feel like, I'm not like these people that have this sense of place and root and identity and family. Yes, you do. Because you know what? At the end, in the new earth, you either have that ancestry or all the others blown away like chaff. You have that ancestry or you don't. It will be the only one that matters. It will be the only one in which the participants reign on the earth. It's global. It's Israel. But the church is the people who are healed. And where do you see that? As As we think about this, remember, all of us are soul and body. Everybody here is a nexus of soul and body. Listen to the language of this is the community whose souls have been healed. Look in verse 9 of chapter 7. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Now you get this explanation question in verse 13. Who are these clothed in white robes? From where have they come? Verse 14. Sir, you know. He said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Look at verse 17. The Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And what is that showing us? Part of the language of Scripture of what God does for sinners in their inner being. And the verb forgiven is used a lot, saved is used. But sometimes God speaks in terms of He heals them. And we don't talk this way as much as Christians in the past used to about being sin-sick. We tend to think about sickness in our bodies so much that we think about physical illness or emotional illness or mental illness. But what about sin sickness? That the sickness that no expert on earth can help us with, that only God can address, is sin sickness. And it's the picture of a community whose souls have ultimately been healed. And as a community, they're guided by a shepherd. Who is the shepherd? The shepherd is the one who healed them. He's utterly trustworthy. He's utterly endeared himself to them. He's utterly reliable. But here's the thing. We're also bodies. And we do experience, as we just mentioned, sickness and suffering and loss and and emotional uh, wreckage in this lifetime. And by the way, lest we hear this, sometimes we experience things so traumatic we never totally get over it. You know? Uh, We could put it this way. There were people who knew what it was like to be stabbed by a blade of Mordor (laughs) way before Lord of the Rings came along. Remember? Frodo gets stabbed by one of the ring wraiths by a blade of Mordor and they try to take care of him in the House of Healing, House of Elrond, and, and he dispatches the ring and happy ending... But that thing will never quite heal. And some of you have been through some things that are so 
awful and traumatic, whatever that was, that even though there can be profound healing in your life, you never quite get over it in this life. But what is the picture? Is that there is a healing, not just of the soul, but of the body, that comes for the church that is thorough. I mean, how, how does it describe it? Verse 16, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Wait a second. Do you mean physically hunger and thirst, or do you mean like even emotionally hunger and thirst? Because lots of rich, well-fed people can be very thirsty. And the answer is yes. They don't hunger, period, and they don't thirst, period. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There's a graveyard in Edinburgh, Scotland, and um, it sits over a mass grave. And there are approximately 18,000 people uh, buried under this monument in Edinburgh. And it's the grave, the the mass grave, of 18,000 Christians who were killed between the 1660s and the 1680s by the Scottish government. And it's when the Reformation was really taking hold in Scotland and there was a lot of pushback by the government. And they call that time the killing times. 18,000 people dead under this mass grave and a monument was put over where they lie And on that monument are the words of Revelation 7. That these are the ones whose robes were made white. These are the ones whose tears God will wipe away. And what is that saying? What, What is that saying to us? If you know that at the end of the day, you don't have to protect, um, you don't have to ultimately answer for your well-being to end up being well. It means that you can take risks. And, And here's the last thought I want to give to you. If this is what the church is, and if this is how great the gospel is, I I want I want to I want to nudge you a little bit this morning. Here's here's the nudge. Some of you sometimes have little sparks inside of you and you're suppressing them. Maybe you're thinking, you know, maybe it's the neighbor across the street. I need to have them over. And you're suppressing it. it. It may be some of you children in this room. It may be that you want to grow up and be a missionary. But it may be that none of your friends are talking about that. Or it may be that you've wanted to write a letter to a missionary and just tell them that you pray for them and you haven't done it. And listen... We need to do those things. Or it could be that sitting in this room is the person and there's just kind of this little voice inside of them saying, you know what, I, I pray for foreign missions. I, I financially support foreign missions. I'm glad our church supports foreign missions. But sometimes deep, deep down, there's this country that I can't get out of my mind. And I don't know why. Not every Christian is called to foreign missions, but are any of us. We have some preparing for it right now. We prayed for them this morning. But could it be that you are the person 
who's going to ha- kind of have to like jump out of the plane and trust God to provide the parachute. Meaning, you might step away from what is known and what is most comfortable and raise support and go somewhere and you're going to see firsthand that this is true. That a culture, maybe not already historically inclined toward the gospel, you're going to be used by God to begin making the gospel known to those people or going and supporting the work of those who've already been doing that. Let's not suppress that. And whether that means short-term missions or long-term missions or those with means giving so that others can go or being on our knees for them or writing them encouragement or having the neighbor over. I mean, it's kind of weird if, you, if we're going on short-term missions trips and we don't know our neighbors. Hey, Nepal, how's it going? And these people don't know me. If you can go, go. But this is every tongue and tribe and people and nation, which is the people on our street too. Or it's the foreign student who's here, and you know the cream of the crop of the nations study in the United States. Maybe the voice has said, you know, I need to adopt one student from another country at one of these schools in the area and just love on him or love on her for one or two or three or four years and not be always giving them evangelism tracts, but just love them. Love them and pray for them and befriend them. And who knows what God might do in their heart if they don't know Christ. But let's not suppress that anymore. And that's my exhortation to people who are in the church. But I want my last exhortation to be this. I'm really going to say it again when we come to the table. Uh, Are you clean? That's a weird, weird... I mean, Revelation has got weird pictures. Now, here's one of them. I'll take my robe that has my dirt on it, my filth that I bring to the table, and I'll dip it in crimson blood, and when I pull it out, it's white. We're used to that kind of language, but it's weird. And it's the language of what? You know what? I come with all that I am. I come with my past. I come with my secrets. I come with my addictions. I come with my bad habits. I come with the ways that I didn't want to be like my family and I am like my family. The only one who can make that robe white is the Lamb. Is Christ Jesus. And you know what? This is not manipulation. If the gospel is this great and it's that true and it's that global in its scope, someone here might become a Christian this morning. And that would be awesome. You cannot cleanse yourself. But you know what? If you go to Christ, whatever your past is, whatever your failings, whatever your addictions, you can go to the Lamb of God and He can make you clean. He has done it for people all over the world, across cultural lines, throughout time. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and become part of this community. And one of these days, we're going to be together and we're going to celebrate forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we would be so bold as to pray that at least one person in this room become a follower of Jesus Christ this morning. We would be so bold as to ask that some man or woman 
or child seated here who knows that they displease you, who knows that they have guilt, who knows they cannot fix themselves, would be enabled by you to trust you, Lord Jesus, that you're the Lamb and you can take away their sins, you can take away the sins of the world, and they'll know, even as they go to bed tonight, they'll know that they're clean. Do that in our midst. Lord, for we who have been cleansed, we we thank you for your mercy. We could not cleanse ourselves. Lord, move our hearts out, out of our house, out of our circle of friends. Direct our hearts to the people who still need to know Christ, whether they're across the street or to the ends of the earth. Please use downtown prayers and the churches of Greenville. The nations might come to you and sing for joy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.